When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. We've already raised enough to pay for 11 months' worth of episodes of this show. We're going to keep the fundraising drive going until we've got a full year covered. We're almost there. Please give if you can afford to. Today, Nate welcomes Ken Emerson to discuss his book, Always Magic in the Air, The Bomp and Brilliance of the Brill Building Era. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming Ken Emerson, the author of Always Magic in the Air, The Bomp and brilliance of the Brill Building Era. I hope my microphone popper was working for that to cut all those bumps out. Hey, Ken, welcome to the show. Oh, good to be talking to you. Cool. So um, tell us about just the big picture introduction of the Brill Building Era, because it's not even one building, actually. This, this stuff actually happened in, what, three or four buildings? And what, what yeah, is well, it about the Brill When okay. was it? And <laughs> Well, it was the the Brill Building had been a fixture since really uh, the 50s, and even it goes back almost to uh, the Depression as a building where uh, popular songwriters and publishers uh, and little recording studios had been headquartered, uh, and it had a name, the Brill Building, because uh, it was uh, built by the Brill Brothers, and the uh, However, there were other buildings nearby, just one a couple of blocks up the street on the other side of the, where uh, many songwriters were. Uh, but the Brill Building sort of lent its, but that name, that uh, building had only a number, uh, not, a, uh, uh, not a name. So it, it, the Brill Building became shorthand. Uh, I had trouble with the, uh, actually talking about it and figuring out how to do this uh, as the title of the book. Because you say the Brill Building era, but it was obviously not the, everything was not in the Brill Building. I was particularly interested in this period of, of uh, music because uh, the combination of musical influences uh, was profound and I think shaped a lot of our music today. 
Uh, and I had before that I had written a, a biography of Stephen Foster and his musical times, which was the middle of the 19th century. And the name of that uh, book was Duda, Stephen Foster and the Rise of Popular Music. And I had written that book because I was always interested in the many, many years that I've been writing about rock and roll. Uh, and when did it first become popular for white teenagers to pretend they were black? And obviously, that's a force behind rock and roll from the very beginning and still is today, uh, or any pop, or, or much, and much of uh, popular music. And it stretched back to uh, blackface uh, minstrel music, the kind that uh, is now very awkward in terms of how we can talk about it, uh, uh, because it's... Uh, Obviously, it is uh, deeply racist, but American history and American music are deeply racist, too. And I think it's always better to uh, confront that than to sweep it under the rug, so to speak, and, and, and politely uh, ignore it. But uh, when I was thinking, so my initial impulse, even though it was something about the 19th century, was to write a, uh, my uh, the initial impulse was my interest in uh, 20th century popular music. Uh, and what interested me in this era was that I did not want to write another book that was really uh, dramatically contrasting and comparing black culture and white culture. And I realized that one of the most important elements of the so-called Brill Building sound was Latin music. And that it, much of this came out of New York at the peak of Puerto Rican uh, migration, and that the most interesting music of this time was a combination of black music, Latin music, and white music. And so I, this is the, that was the, the hook essentially that, that led me to uh, become interested in this subject. And uh, I still am 20 years later. Awesome. And I'm so grateful for you to come and uh, talk about a book that you wrote this long ago. Some people don't want to do that. But yeah, the Brill Building era, for people who don't know, this was this. This is sometimes called the dark ages of rock and roll because Elvis was in the army. Chuck Berry was in jail. Jerry Lee Lewis was disgraced. Little Richard had turned Christian. Buddy Holly and Richie Valens had died in a car crash. Eddie Cochran had been uh, in a plane crash. Eddie Cochran had been killed in a car crash. Gene Vincent was mute, mangled in that same car crash. So it seemed to some people, like John Lennon maybe, that all the great heroes of rock and roll were taken out and replaced by Fabian and Frankie Avalon and Bobby Darren and Bobby V and, and so on and so on. But when you, at the same time, somebody like John Lennon would say, but I loved Phil Spector. I loved Motown. Yeah. Go ahead. He, loved, he idolized uh, uh, McCartney uh, and, and, and uh, Lennon idolized uh uh, Jerry Goffin and Carol King, and that initially that's who they wanted to be. And also, when you think about the music of whether it be uh, the Drifters uh, and Save the Last Dance for Me or Sweets for My Sweet or This Magic Moment, or you think of the Coasters and Yakety Yak, Don't Talk Back, and Who's you know, Charlie Brown and Feed Five Folk Fum, I Smell Smoke in the Auditorium, or uh, 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 Dion and and the Belmonts, or Dion himself singing uh, the Wanderer. Um, uh, I think it was it, 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 every uh, generation thinks that the, the past generation they well they're you know they're superior to. But I think that the idea that the that 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 popular music was barren before the Beatles is is absurd. Among other things, when the Rolling Stones and uh, the uh, Beatles began, they were most of their material was 
was were songs that were performed largely by black but by white Americans too, uh, only a year or two beforehand. I mean, think of Twist and Shout. I mean, one of the greatest songs that the Beatles performed in their early career. I mean, that that was a that was not something that was came from a previous era. It was about it was a, a, a almost a contemporary song and only a year old. Yes. And we've talked about Burt Burns. He's not in this book, but we've, we've done a whole episode on Burt Burns. But yeah, the great Burt Burns who wrote Twist and Shout, who produced uh, so many great album records for Solomon Burke and stuff. But let's start actually with kind of where this starts. And there's no two ways about it. Um, Lieber and Stoller, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, were the first independent production songwriting team in rock and roll, starting in the early 50s with Big Mama Thornton and Hound Dog, uh, you know, working with the great Johnny Otis and, 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 and the, the uh, evil Duke of, of Houston, Don Roby, the business guy who didn't pay him any royalties. But Lieber and Solar uh, start out in L.A. Uh, Stoller, I might be wrong on this, one of them's from Baltimore, the other one grew up in L.A., but they both ended up in L.A. as very young teen, as young teenagers and came together. And there were two Jewish kids who loved the blues and who could write it convincingly enough to get Big Mama Thornton to record their songs. That is no joke. And what you're talking about, yes, in the course of this you know, five, six year Let It Roll project, exactly what, what we see in the Brill Building is this cultural coming together where People like Lieber and Stoller and Goffin and King and Sadaka and Greenfield, Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann, Barry and uh, Greenwich, um, were Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich were very aware of not only rock and roll and blues, but they were also people who had been raised on what we call the Great American Songbook. And so people like Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and, and the Gershwins, uh, these, these were songs somebody like Phil Spector could sit down at a piano and sing all night. So these people were bringing in that American tradition as well, which was a heavily Jewish tradition. And a lot of these people, um, maybe almost all of them are Jewish. Not, not all of them, Doc. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah Doc Pomus, um, a lot of Jewish people doing this. And like you said, they're combining um, the R&B and blues that they love so much. And the, and the, and the singers of these songs are often um, black. And there were also black songwriters. Otis Blackwell, who wrote, you know, uh, Great Balls of Fire and All Shook Up and so many of the great rock and roll songs. He was in the Brill Building, too. He's the guy who brought Doc Pomus in there. And, and just I'll close the thing about John Lennon with this. When John Lennon met Doc Pomus's daughter in a convenience store in a bodega in Manhattan in the mid 70s, she shyly entered, you know, there's a whole crowd of people all in the store going, is that John Lennon? Is that the Beatle? And she just got up her nerve and said, excuse me, Mr. Lennon, my dad is Doc Pomus. And he turned and looked at her and he gave her this intense stare and she didn't know if he was mad or what. And then he started singing, save the last dance for me. And sang the entire the crowd assembled around him. And that tells you what uh, these people meant to the next generation. So let's get back to Lieber and Stoller. Steph's telling me I got to cue a song. And let's hear Stand By Me by a young Benny King who has just gone solo from the Dip Drifters. And uh, this is a collaboration with Lieber and Stoller who were in the booth producing. And the land is dark. And the moon is the only light we'll see. No, I won't. 
just as long as you stand, stand by me. So darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand. And that was the great Benny King, who, of course, sang the vocals on the song I was just talking about, John Lennon singing. Uh, Save the Last Dance for Me, but we just did a Doc Pomus episode, so I don't want to play that one again. But Stand By Me is pretty much just as good. Uh, and uh, uh, Benny King was a singer. But so Labor and Stoller, tell us about how they went from L.A., got their start in L.A., and how they came to New York and what happened once they got to New York. Well, they were very popular uh, in Los Angeles writing songs for a variety of artists, almost all of whom, with a couple of exceptions, uh, were were black. And they were all on the rhythm and blues and the, and the race charts. Not Very few of them were really that popular uh, with, uh, uh, on, on, with, with, with white audiences at that point. But they began to have success with the original group of the Drifters that had no relationship to the group that recorded uh, stand by me and other songs, uh, and so they and, and, and they doing that. They also had success with a group called the Robins, who would later become the Coasters, and so they began to be, attract the attention of uh, producers and record companies uh, in the East Coast, where most of the national record companies uh, were st- were still located at that time. And particularly in Atlantic Records, for whom uh, the Drifters recorded, uh, and they were invited to come east on the basis of their success, uh, largely with the Robins Coasters, as they were called. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why they were called. They changed their name to the Robins to the Coasters because they were East Coast uh, company and a West Coast group, and the Drifters uh, to try to recreate their success with a new group of drifters because their manager had fired all the old ones uh, and uh, to, to take their, their music further. So they worked with uh, uh, the Erdogan brothers and Jerry Wexler, who were the principals of Atlantic, working with those two groups. And the two groups were very different. The coasters were comic. Everything they did was funny. Uh, and uh, to this day, I mentioned earlier, you think about to Charlie Brown, Fee Fi Fo Fum, I Smell Smoke in the Auditorium, or to my mind, one of their favorites, the Dublon Tendre of Poison Ivy and Venereal Disease. Uh, they were, those were funny songs, but the Drifters were saying romantic songs. And Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller were not very, as well as particularly Jerry Lieber, who had a very sarcastic, comic point of view, were not very good at writing romantic uh, ballads. So they began, when they came to New York, to cast about uh, for other, for writers who could write uh, more romantic songs that were appropriate for the Drifters, and then Lieber and Stoller would produce them. And this is one of the reasons, one of the creations of the Brill Building uh, sound was that they first, they got involved with Doc Pomus and Mark Schumann, and later with Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, and with uh, Jerry Goffin, 
and Carol King. So they were really mentors to a generation of uh, fabulous writers who, at the the beginning, were scarcely out of their teens, and and Lieber and Stoller taught them and taught them well. Uh, Also, Burt Bacharach and Hal David, Burt Bacharach had been the 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 director of Marlena Dietrich's uh, band, and he realized that there, you know that that if he was going to make money, uh, he had to get a, he had to learn about rock and roll. So he literally came to uh, Lieber and Stoller and said, "Teach me how to make pop records that aren't just sort of old middle of the road uh, records," and he learned from them as well. Uh, so you said in the beginning that. Uh, that this is where the story begins, and that's why uh, Lieber and Stoller were just so important. I also want to stress, by the way, that or point out that there are some people that you could also include in this that are not in quite that family. I think most notably uh, people like Bob Crew and Bob Gaudio and and uh, the Four Seasons. Uh, so there were other principles that uh, in that in this era uh, I chose not to write about them simply because they didn't have the personal relationship with the other group the people that uh, uh, I wrote about and we're talking about today but the, so the Brill building sound and era extended beyond the, the principal songwriters that were that we're discussing today yes absolutely and that's that's a very important point but I, I you, you just had to narrow it down you you didn't talk about Otis Blackwell or Burt Burns in the book either, but just, you know, you told a lot of story here, but there's, for anybody, there's a lot more to learn about the Brill Building. It was deep and rich, and there's a lot of talented people doing a lot of cool stuff. But, you know, Lieber and Stoller work at Atlantic for a while, and then they try to audit Atlantic, and I've told this story several times on the show with Ed Ward and others, and Jerry Wexler basically fired them for having the temerity to ask for an audit, and they found out that Atlantic owed them $18,000 they hadn't collected but they got fired, and I don't even know if they got the money. So they had to go out and start their own record label. Now, as great as they were at being songwriters and producers, they weren't the best song pickers. And they come in touch with this guy, George Goldner, who was kind of one of the great Latin record producers and record label men of the 50s era, which preceded it. And all these kids were dancing to Latin music almost every weekend in the 50s. So this is incredibly important. And we're doing a series with Ned Sublet on where is this Latin music coming from, from Cuba and, and the Congo. It was coming up, it was literally coming from the Congo up through Cuba and Jamaica and the islands, and then coming up to New York via Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, and, and coming up. And, and these you know, kids had listened to this stuff. So George Goldner's a big guy from Latin music. And then he had been the masterminder. He'd worked with Frankie Val- Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. You know, why do fools fall in love? And the problem with George Goldner was he was a chronic gambling addict. So he was owned by another guy, basically, named Morris Levy, who was the Genovese family uh, representative, shall we say, in the um, music business. So Lieber and Stoller partner with George Goldner. He has, they have a stack of demos. He says, let me hear what you got. And he goes through the stack and he picked out the exact songs that were hit records. And Redbird Records goes on this tear for several years of making tons of records, lots of hits. And one day the Genovese family checks in with Lieber and Stoller and they end up giving away their share in that for $1 each. And George Goldner you know, bet it all on the horses and Morris Levy ended up with it. But let's get on to Goffin and King. Tell us about Carol King and Jerry Goffin. And this is 
one point before you start. If you've watched Mad Men, oh, okay, Steph tells me I got a cue again. So let's get the cue in there. And let's go with the great classic by Goffin and King, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And that was the Shirelles singing Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, one of the great classics written by a young Carole King and a young Jerry Goffin. And the interesting part is this is a song from a woman's point of view, but the man wrote the lyrics. Carole King wrote the music. Who are they? How did they come together? And what did they do? Well, uh, first of all, just the story of that song is pretty remarkable. Uh, the, the first hit by uh, the, the Shirelles was a song called Tonight's the Night. And so uh, Don Kirshner's record company uh, and song publishing company, uh, All Don Music, uh, wanted to write the, uh, the follow-up to tonight's uh, the night. And uh, they, he had urged uh, Jerry Goffin and Carol King, whom he had hired, but had not, they had not yet written a hit. And they were recently married. Uh, and it was a shot, well, shall we say a shotgun wedding because uh, Carol had become pregnant. Uh, and uh, one night, uh, not that long when they still they had an infant daughter, um, uh, Carol King went out to uh, play Mahjong uh, and uh, with friends. And uh, Jerry, who was still working part-time, or actually full-time in a chemical factory, after work went out to uh, bowl with some buddies. He came back, and he found uh, this uh, a note on the piano from Carol King uh, saying, Sweetie, I mean, I've written a, a half of the song. What do you think? And he figured it out, and he said, Oh, this is absolutely fantastic. And he... Uh, then wrote the uh, the lyrics, and uh, and th then uh, Carol came back, and by midnight together they had written the bridge, and the song was finished. And the point that one of the great things about this song is it's a song about a woman's fear of becoming pregnant. Uh, will you still love me tomorrow? And of course Jerry did love her tomorrow, and uh, their marriage lasted some time. Uh, they were eventually uh, divorced. But it, it rang true to them as, uh, uh, as, as a young couple. Ironically, uh, they, they recorded a demo, and uh, Don Kirshner, the head of All Don Music, thought it was so great that he wanted Johnny Mathis to sing it. <laughs> and the idea that you would have uh, uh, a... a a man who, among other things, was gay, uh, sing this "Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow" about a woman's fears of pregnancy was just absurd. Uh, but uh, Don Don was not always, although he had a great ear, often for hit records. Sometimes he could be a little tuner, or shall we say, gender deaf. 
<laughs> and then also Tony Orlando of Dawn later on. And, you know, not three times on the window, if you hear me, I mean, that, that, and wear a yellow ribbon. He was a young man uh, who was also involved uh, with All Dawn Music. He wanted to sing it. Uh, but thank God it went to the Shirelles. Ironically, uh, when the Shirelles first heard it, they thought it sounded too much like a country song. And they were not, not quite sure that it was right for them. But uh, but uh, Scepter Records, their recording company, uh, overcame their uh, reluctance, and it was a huge hit for them. And uh, it the it was so successful that uh, uh, Jerry Goffin was able to quit his job at the chemical company uh, where he was working and uh, become a full time songwriter. And the thing I got to mention about Spectre Records before we go, we won't be talking about them much, but this is a company founded by Florence Greenberg, who uh, uh, had sold a previous record company. I think she co-owned with her ex-husband for $4,000 and started this label. And she met a handsome young black man named Luther Dixon. And they became surreptitious lovers and produced a great string of hits. So there's a lot of integrating and cultural mixing going on. And the other thing about the Brill Building is so many of these women, uh, Carol King, uh, Cynthia Weil and Ellie Greenwich, this is really the first, uh, there were some female songwriters uh, that made their mark in the, in the Great American Songbook, but this really is the first time in American history that women are at the absolute forefront of popular music. These three were some of the key they were holding their own with Burt Bacharach and Mort Schumann and uh, Mike Stoller and uh, Neil Sedaka, who were all musical titans uh, in the composition department. And these ladies were more than holding their own. So this is, the baby boomers are already much more egalitarian and much more pro-woman than previous generations without even really realizing it. They're already doing that. So we got to rush because I want to cover everybody. Let's talk next about another Aldon publishing group uh, team. And this is Neil Sadaka and Norman Greenfield. How'd they get together? Who were they? And what did they do while they were with Aldon? Well, they are really the beginning of Aldon because they were the first uh, uh, songwriting group, uh, a, a pair that uh, Don Kirshner uh, uh, became involved with. Uh, and they wrote songs for Connie Francis that were the first hits for uh, Don Kirshner as a, as a music publisher. So they really farm, uh, Neil and uh, Neil and Howie are really the people with whom the story of all Don uh, music uh, begins. Uh, and uh, Neil was a um, classically trained pianist. Uh, Carol King uh, went to the same high school. She was a couple of years behind him uh, and idolized Neil. It actually was a very, over the years, uh, there's sort of a frostiness in the way they've talked about each other. Um, I think partly because Carol King became so famous uh, that Neil felt a little um, uh, outclassed or competitive with her. Uh, and also one of his first hit songs was called Carol, Oh Carol, uh, in, in tribute to her. And, and so they were, the, these people were all uh, very close to each other. Um, and I, if I may have I can interrupt you for one second, Ken. I want to add one point about that. Uh, Neil Sadaka, and I don't remember you talking about this in the book, but it's it's a known thing. Neil Sadaka has this great run of hits as a very young teen, 
with Norman Greenfield as his lyricist. Incredibly talented Howie composer. Green, Howie Greenfield. Howie Greenfield. Sorry, sorry. Thank you for correcting me there. And um, uh, but Neil let his mother manage his affairs. And she and his and another man who came in to manage him had an affair and ended up squandering his entire money. So when he was resenting Carol King's massive success in the early 70s, you got to keep in mind he had already been famous and now he was not having hits anymore and he was broke. And he has this massive comeback in the 70s and, and got it, you know, built up a fortune again. But so we can see why Neil was a little bitter. But let's get back to what they did. Okay. Well, uh, among uh, I want to mention here one of my big one of my pet peeves, and that is it is outrageous and insulting and ignorant that Neil Sedaka is not a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Agreed. And it's not Absolutely. I mean, it is just uh, it is criminal and an indictment of uh, of uh, of the Rock and Roll Hall and of Fame. I'm going to call out Yan Winter on that. It's also homophobia. And it's interesting because Neil Sadaka, yeah, who has but no, I many- want to make- Let me finish. Let me finish. Neil Sadaka self-described as himself as a sissy. He's not gay. He's hetero. But Howie Greenfield was gay. And yeah. I believe that the Neil Sadaka presented as a sissy, as a self-described quote-unquote sissy, that that has, that homophobes like I was when I was a younger man, like so many people are, that has has that is the reason because his music holds up. So go ahead. Not only you. does <laughs> yeah, not not only does it hold up in terms of I mean, breaking up is hard to do is one of the greatest uh, uh, records ever made. Period. <laughs> uh, in terms of its construction, uh, a later ballad he wrote that was a hit uh, for uh, the Carpenters. I think it's one of the great pop ballads, and that is Solitaire. Um, yes. And so he's got, and, and, and you think about, I love, I love, I love my calendar girl. Um, I'm, you know, uh, stairway to heaven, uh, living right next door to an angel. Uh, these are just incredible songs. And th- by the way, there's another person who was neglected for whom he wrote is Connie Francis. The idea that, yes. that Leslie Gore is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Connie Francis, who had many more hit records, is not. Uh is there's a kiss of curious, and I agree, by the way, with the homophobia, although sooner or later you've got to deal with Elton John. I mean, if I were Elton John, I would have made, uh, I would have denied, I, I would have declined to be in the, uh, uh, elected to the Hall of Fame until Neil Sedaka uh, was elected. Yes, but I agree with you about, you know, that, about that. It's, it's a question of that, 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 that um, sort of rock and roll guitar uh, uh uh, uh, contempt for or fear of effeminacy, which is so ironic since so much of rock and roll. I mean, think of uh, by God, David Bowie and uh, uh, and, and Mick Jagger <laughs> is, is a Yes, yes, out and proud. But we've got to take a sponsor break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Burt Backrack and how they. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And before we switch entirely to Backrack and Hal David, I also want to mention, can you run through some of the great songs that Howie Greenfield wrote the lyrics to without Neil Sedaka? Uh, yes. And because Neil, after all, was a star in his own right, he was spent a lot of time performing. Uh, and so uh, Howie Greenfield often had, had to twiddle his thumbs and write with other people. So among the greatest songs that uh, he wrote were uh, just to start out with Crying in the Rain for the Everly Brothers that he wrote with Carol King, Everybody Somebody School for uh, with Jack Keller, who also was a, is a underrated songwriter who all and 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 uh, wrote uh, melodies mainly, but also did a lot of great stuff uh, with Jerry Goffin and other people. Uh, and uh, what well, I think well, those are two of the greatest. Um, uh, did you, you might want to add some yourself. Yeah, I'll add Foolish Little Girl with Helen Miller by the Shirelles, of course. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, so Greenfield, that's a lovely song, especially because of the drama. Uh, it's one of the few songs where they have two of the singers of the Shirelles singing back and forth. It's a lovely sort of uh, uh, much more call and response than the Shirelles usually are. Uh, it's it's got a nice sort of uh, dramatic construction, and it was a big influence on what Smokey Robinson would come to do later, especially with the Marvelettes. Um, uh, it, it's a, it's as clear as day when you listen to that song, and then hear some of the work that Smokey Robinson would go on to do at Motown. Smokey, of course, one of the great Motown songwriters. But let's talk about Burt Backrack and Hal David. You've already told us about how Backrack was somebody coming from the jazz pop world who knew, who realized he needed to learn about rock and roll and, and, and did. And, and Bacharach is somebody who had, at least for the last 20 years he, of his life, and he recently passed away, he more than got his due. People, I think there was a lot of contempt for his music in the 70s and 80s, but by the 90s, people came back to look at work, especially their work with Dionne Warwick. Uh, do you know the San Jose? Walk, do you know the way to San Jose? Walk on by. Uh, so many great hits. He wrote What the World Needs Now is Love for Jackie DeShannon. They wrote Alfie for Cilla Black, The Look of Love for Dusty Springfield, 24 Hours to Tulsa for Gene Pitney, which is a great song. My Little Red Book, 
uh, which Love made a, a hit, although Burt Bacharach never forgave him for mangling his chords because they uh, saw the song performed in a movie and got home a few hours later and didn't remember all the chords, so they, they kind of butchered it. But I think I think that I think they kept the spirit of the song and more. But um, tell us about Bacharach and David and and the way they incorporated Latin music and. Just well, first I just want to mention that uh, my, the Love's version of My Little Red Book was not a hit. Uh, Manfred Mann's well, was. That came, that, yeah, uh, but Love was a regional hit, and it's the one that's become the standard version. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, well, they were, first of all, they were older, uh, especially uh, Hal David was from a previous generation. Uh, and also, they were signed to a company that was a the, the uh, that was a subsidiary of pub music publishing that was uh, that was a subsidiary of the Paramount movie uh, company, and so they immediately were already writing for motion pictures from the beginning, and they had a cinematic feel. Think about Twenty Four Hours to Tulsa by Gene Pitney sounds like a movie. I mean, and and they wrote songs like the man who wrote. Uh, uh, who shot Liberty Valance. Uh, Which ironically completed in time to include in the movie, but did become a hit. Yes, and of course, then you mentioned uh, Alfie, uh, and then of course to me, one of their greatest songs, The Look of Love, uh, and one of the sexiest songs they ever wrote, uh, which was in Casino Royale. So they were not writing for, for kids the same way that especially Jeff Berry and Ellie uh, Greenwich were. Uh, they were much, they were writing for adults. Uh, I would suggest, however, that over the years, and this is one of the reasons why I believe his reputation uh, waned for a good while uh, in the 80s, is that he was, not only was he aware of jazz, uh, but and, and, and older music, but he was also classically trained. And as long as he was working with rhythm and blues artists, it sort of anchored his music, real, I would say, emotional power and vitality. But over the years, his music became more and more fussy and filigreed. Uh, and also he began working almost entirely for a long time with sort of white bread artists. And it, it, the music lost, in, uh, I would say, uh, that, that sort of emotional grounding. Uh, and I, it was like sometimes it was as if he were making sailing ships in bottles. Uh, and so I think that that, he, that a lot of his later music simply didn't have the, I mean, it had a, a, a sort of, a, 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 it was formally, you know, structurally interesting, but, 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 but uh, in terms of emotions, it was sort of vapid. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why he, he suffered a, a you know, uh, uh, de decline. That's now, I think, in, in, in some now, he's sort of, and of course, I hate to say something about the recently to see, now he's really deified, almost gone to the opposite extreme. Uh, but uh, yes. certainly, and, I mean, he and Hal David were great songwriters. Yes, and I would also argue that the Latin influence, particularly the Brazilian influence, which is a little different from the influence that the other Latin music fans we're talking about had, I, I would almost put Bacharach as sort of a, a, a long distance member of the Bossa Nova movement that um, well, that, that, that had such big hits yeah, in the mid sixties well, in America, like uh, the girl from Ipanema. And, uh, and, 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 and there's a, there's a, a beat and I'm 
blanket on the name of of the Brazilian beat, the Bayon, I think, is, is the, the word in Portuguese, that that was some of the secret ingredient that Backrack and David were combining. But we got to cover, um, let's go ahead and hear 24 Hours to Tulsa by Gene Pitney, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde. Darling, I had to write to say that I won't be home anymore For something happened to me while I was driving home And I'm not the same anymore Oh, I was only 24 hours from Tulsa Only one day away from your arms I All right, we've got two more to cover, and both of them are married couples again. Again, totally novel. This has not happened before in American history, and it really hasn't happened since. This is a, a magical era. Who were Barry yeah. Mann and Cynthia Watt? What's their greatest work? And, and they've got some doozies. Well, uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde's most fe- frequently played song is You've Lost That Love and Feeling by the Wright Which is the brother. most frequently played in history. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, also other songs that are, are uh, We Gotta Get Out of This Place by The Animals, which was to have been a single by Barry Mann himself. But uh, his uh, his publisher, I mean, uh, John Kirshner, uh, gave it to uh, Mickey Most, who was the, who was the uh, producer of The Animals and many other uh, British groups. Uh, so it stole... Uh, his Thunder, another song that he wrote about Jerry Goffin, uh, Kicks, by Paul Revere. And the, it was an anti-drug song uh, that uh, was recorded by Paul Revere and the Raiders. And that was uh, he was hoping that that song was, would discourage Jerry Goffin uh, from continuing to not only dabble, but immerse himself in drugs. Uh, Jerry did become a bit of a drug casualty as uh, uh once uh, uh Barry Mann told me that you know a lot of people you know can can do drugs and it doesn't hurt them but some people are just you know fragile and they can be destroyed by them and that is one that unfortunately that is the direction uh the uh, the arc of uh Jerry Goffin's uh, career uh, as brilliant uh a lyricist as he was uh, so those are some of the great songs that they wrote. Another that uh, always fascinates me is uh, "Only in America," um, which yes. was originally and, and a satira. Episode. We've just done that song in the previous episode, so yeah, our, our okay. readers should, if you're not there, listen to the Richard Aquila. That's a great story uh, of of uh, uh, too. So, so forgive me for that, um, but. Uh, yeah, so one of the great songwriting teams, and one name we didn't mention yet, although we mentioned one of his songs, was Phil Spector. And so these two came in, and and Phil Spector was as hot as anybody uh, in this period, an incredible string of hits. And uh, Man and Wow were there for him, uh, for that You Lost the Love and Feeling, which is kind of the capstone and crescendo of Phil, Phil Spector's career. He never matched that kind of height again. But now let's talk about our final pair, um, which is Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, who also were great songwriters for Phil Spector. They wrote To Do Ron Ron for the Crystals, Be My Baby for the Ronettes, Then He Kissed Me for the Crystals, but a lot of other stuff. Tell us about Barry and Greenwich, and in particular, their uh, 
project, The Raindrops? Well, uh, they were another married couple, although they their marriage lasted less than three years. Uh, and uh, they're also famous for uh, the leader of the pack uh, by the Shangri-Las. And uh, they, just as I said earlier, that in working for the Drifters uh, on Atlantic Records, Lieber and Stoller encouraged younger songwriters to write material. When they formed Redbird Records, they were getting on a little long in the tooth. And they realized they did not have their finger on the on the pulse of white teenagers. So then they they got they hired uh, uh, Barry and Greenwich to write the songs like Chapel of Love, which was their first hit on on uh, uh, Redbird Records, uh, which uh, Barry and Greenwich wrote uh, for the Dixie Cups. So they performed. They, they had the same relationship and function and, and importance to Lieber and Solar at Redbird that Man and Wild uh, and uh, Goffin and King and Thomas and Schumann had when they were at Atlantic Records with the Drifters. Um, and they were earlier. You said that that all these 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 white uh, couples had a, a, a relationship to jazz and to Broadway and to. Uh, Know, the Great American Songbook. That's not really true so much of Barry and Greenwich. They were really, uh, they were archetypal teens in their way uh, th- th- that um, lived in, it, and they were brilliant at evoking uh, this world with almost baby talk. Think about do what diddy, do, do run run, be my baby. My baby does the hanky panky. Uh, they're, they're, they're they had this brilliant touch of of of, of usefulness, and at, at one point they had, they formed uh, their some of their demos were so great that that they were released uh, as songs by a made up group, the Raindrops, and one of them is uh, was uh, my granddaughter's favorite song at the age of three, and that is um, he's the kind of guy boy you can't forget. He goes did a little little it 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 was this great uh, hilarious. Let me let me stop you there because that's the next song we're going to play. So let's hear the raindrops. Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich singing. He's the kind of boy you can't forget. And that was the Raindrops, a.k.a. Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich singing He's the Kind of Boy You Can't Forget. I feel kind of guilty uh, that you sang that because and then and then playing the record. But it is so fun to sing that. I can't resist. Uh, <laughs> I always sing the yeah. Jeff Barry part. The snippet that you played probably did not include the middle eight, which is a totally different set of voices when it goes, whoa, 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 whoa. 
it, it is a brilliant, I mean, uh, uh, L.A. Greenwich was a brilliant background singer, backup singer, who could construct girl harmonies uh, and, and sing them herself, uh, either multi-tracked or behind the artist that she was uh, involved in uh, recording and producing. Uh, so the, uh, she was a brilliant harmonist. Yes, she was. And, and, um, and, and sadly, uh, after they divorced, Jeff Barry goes on to co-write Sugar Sugar and, and have many hits uh, in the bubblegum vein. But Ellie Greenwich never really matched the work that she did with Barry again. Do you have any insight as to why? It's sort of sad. I, you're right. Of all these groups, I mean, even, even Jerry Goffin with his, with his drug problems had successful um, um, uh, co uh, collaborations uh, uh, after he broke up with Carol. And actually, he continued to write sometimes for Carol when she morphed into a singer-songwriter. Um, but the, the one person who didn't uh, was, was Ellie Greenwich. I always got the sense, and I didn't know her well, although I interviewed her, um, uh, that she was somehow fragile, uh, that she never really, she never really quite recovered. She never remarried. Uh, and I, I think it has to have been somewhat psychological, uh, that she just didn't have that, uh, ability to do it on her own. Uh, that almost everybody, there was one point, for instance, uh, in their marriage, uh, when uh, Cynthia Mann, uh, she, uh, Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann broke up, and uh, Cynthia had several hits writing with other people before they got back together again. Uh, it's sort of sad, uh, but I, I, and I think it has it was partly psychological. But I, I wouldn't. Yeah, and I think part to go into might have been. And, and, and we covered this on our Burt Burns episode, but part of it was that that Barry and uh, Greenwich had discovered Neil Diamond and had shepherded him along in much the way that Lieber and Stoller had shepherded them along, except, of course, he was a performer. But because of his relationship with Burt Burns and Burt Burns's relationship with the Genovese family, uh, that came to a very, very ugly end, and uh, Barry and Greenwich were, were definitely the casualties of that. And now, um, let's go ahead and talk. I should have talked about this these two earlier because they were pre previous. Uh, but we've talked about Doc Pomus before, the great beloved Doc Pomus. I don't want to cry right now, so I'm not going to uh, start um, <laughs> talking, telling that story. But I will. I do want to talk about Doc's partner, Mort Schumann, who's often overlooked because Doc Pomus was such a beloved figure and such a beatific figure. And Mort Schumann uh, wrote the music for the great hits, Save yeah. the Last Dance for Teenager in Love, um, uh, 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 Marie's the Name of His Latest Flame and Little Sister by Elvis and, and so on and so forth. And um, it just an incredible talent who went on to go to France and uh, uh, basically translated um, Jacques Brel's work and also became a hit songwriter in his own right uh, in yeah. France and had to change his name. So tell us about Mort. I hope I haven't talked too much of the story. Well, Mort grew up speaking Yiddish uh, and, and, uh, until the age of five or six. I mean, that was what was spoken in his, in his home. Uh, and he had this incredible gift for uh, an enthusiasm. He was a total mambo nut. 
Um, and the most Latin song that the Drifters ever sang, uh, which was Sweets for My Sweets, that has Ray Barreto in the, uh, playing conga. Uh, and you can hear, and, and the piano was b- being played uh, by more. Uh, by Mort Schumann, and you can hear him singing on the chorus as well. So, and, and he was fluent in Spanish, to so spend a lot of time in, in, in Mexico and Latin America. And then he also became fluent in French. And he was on broad, off-Broadway in one of the longest, uh, he did a, some of the translations, and he performed in one of the longest off-Broadway musicals, uh, longest-running ones, I'm Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. The man who wrote, who, who translated most of those songs uh, was a man named Eric Blau, uh, who was a Columbia professor, and he said that Mort could speak French better than he could. And one of the problems with the restlessness of with Mort Schumann is that he was a young guy, and he wanted to travel all around the world, which he did, but because of his polio, Doc Pomus was pretty much stuck at home. Uh, and so the, the relationship became more and more strained as more uh, would, would take off around around the world, uh, and he he became he actually spent some time in London, uh, where among other things he wrote some songs for uh, the original Small Faces uh, and for the Hollies, uh, and then he settled in France where he became a big star and he never pretended that he, <laughs> that he was French. Uh, every, and, and he wrote song, he sang songs in French about being a Brooklyn Jew. Uh, and still he, and, and there were some, some of the songs are fantastic. And he became what they called in France, I mean, a superstar and called vedette uh, in, 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 Frank, in, in, in France without for a moment disguising in his his origins. Yeah. It's fascinating yeah. story. Yeah, and he had to change his name from Mort, which means death in French, to Mortimer. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And the, uh, yeah. He wrote "Sha La 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 Lee" for the Small Faces, and, uh, co-wrote it, and he co-wrote "Here I Go Again" for the Hollies. If you like mid '60s British pop and and hardcore uh, R and B, those are two two classics right there. So Mort Schumann is somebody I, I really. He passed away not long after Doc did, and I, I hope someone can write a book about him because his story really needs to be told in depth. Like you say, an amazing character, a world traveler uh, who had multiple careers, but also it is sad. And you noted that you know Doc Pomus was a little older and he had brought Mort Schumann, I think, when Mort was 17 or 18 under his wing and essentially uh, taught him how the whole game worked and just gave him 10% of what of his publishing just to sit there and watch Doc write. And eventually Mort contributed more and more and they became 50-50 partners. So yeah, one of the great stories of a great era. And Ken, um, I'm going to have to drag you back to talk about Stephen Foster. So so please put that in your, in your playbook for the next uh, few months because uh, that's a very important topic well but um thank you so much for for covering this era and the passion and love you bring to this music well it's a pleasure talking to you uh and uh, i look forward to hearing what you do with what you do with what i said (laughs) (laughs) all right it'll be out very soon thanks ken keep me posted Follow The Let It Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast 
and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Legg will be back with more discussion of Michelangelo Matos' book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.